Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Well, hello, Miss April Callahan and hello, hello dress listeners. <laughs> Many of us are now entering into our third week of self-distancing, and April and I are back with some um, interesting articles to discuss and some things to do to keep you busy for those of us that are working from home or at home or quite frankly, are just looking for something interesting and fun to do that's related to fashion history. How are you today, April? Oh, I'm good. I was just going to say, like, when we decided to start doing this new mini-sode format um, uh, earlier this year, we had no idea that that <laughs> that this was going to happen. So it's <laughs> kind of timely that we decided to do this, you know, fashion history now format for everyone that's at home. Yeah, absolutely. And while, you know, we definitely had things that you could go out and do, there is so much to do on the internet. So we are very grateful for that. And I, April, have spent quite a long time recently over the last week on Google Arts and Culture. Uh, I know that we've talked about this previously on the show, but I wanted to remind our listeners about Google Arts and Culture. They have a website online and they also have a fantastic app. We just did a episode on Queen Sirikit of Thailand, for instance, on Tuesday with Melissa 1110. And there's actually an online exhibition that you can view and kind of walk through on Google Arts and Culture. Um, it's sponsored by the Queen Sirikit Museum of Textiles. And it basically, you can uh, go through these different garments that were featured in the exhibition and get kind of an up-close and personal look at these jaw-droppingly beautiful gowns. April, I know I don't have to tell you, you've seen them <laughs> in person. <laughs> but they feature many dresses in this exhibition by Pierre Balmain for Syracuse, uh, for her Euro-American tour, um, which happened in 1960. And as uh, Melissa talked about on our episode Tuesday, that was a partnership that lasted into the 1980s until Balmain's death in 82. So they range from day wear to evening wear. So there's a zoom in feature that you can zoom in and see these dresses close up, um, closer than you ever would actually be able to in person. That's the power of technology. There is this incredible, what I would call a ribbon dress. The museum calls it a fringe dress. Um, it's from 1961. And it has these strips of satin applied individually to the neckline of the dress. And mm. then again at the waist. So it almost, you can just imagine that it would move when she walked. And it's kind of belted. I think it's belted. It's so incredibly beautiful, and it has all of this jaw-dropping um, lissage embroidery all over it, as did many of her pieces um, from that time. And then they have, you know, those incredible Batman evening dresses, which we've been posting and will continue to post this week on our Instagram account in collaboration with this episode. And then there's also examples of the Thai national support dress. And the support was that organization that she created to um, help stimulate, support, and promote the textile industry and workers in Thailand. And Balmain would actually eventually adopt a lot of those Thai village woven ecots into his designs for the queen. So we'll be posting some of that on our Instagram later too. 
And you know I'm a huge ECOT <laughs> fan. Um, and, and, and yes, you can see that exhibition and about a billion other more things. Okay, I'm maybe exaggerating, but um, it's, it's actually one of the first places that I kind of head to um, when I'm looking for something really, really specific because this whole Google Arts and Culture project has like a separate subsection that is called We Wear Culture that's only clothing, textiles, and dress. So, um, and many, many museums from all over the world have contributed digital imagery from their collections. So um, it's, it's a really great place to find things from smaller museums that you might not readily think of right away. So, Yeah, so there's actually nine online exhibits in total from just the Queen Sarah Kitt Museum of Textiles, which is incredible. But then there's exhibitions such as LACMA's Reigning Men Fashion and Menswear, 1715 to 2015. I actually had the pleasure of seeing that exhibit in person. It's a couple years back, but now you can literally, and that's the great thing about Google Arts and Culture, right, is because it's kind of connected to Google Maps. So they have this ability for you to go into the exhibit and walk through it on your computer and your app, which is incredible. And then there's also exhibits that were curated by past dressed guests. So of course, the Queen Syracate exhibit, Melissa Leventon worked on, as well as there's the language of fans. Um, that curator was on last year, April interviewed her. And then Men in Heels past, you know, um, Elizabeth Simmelhack uh, curated that exhibition. And then April, there is a really cool exhibit that I'd never seen before. It was Valerie Steele's 18 Favorite Dresses at FIT. So that was really fun to go through as well. I haven't seen that. So I should hop on there. Yeah, maybe I'll put a link to it because she has the Poiré Sorbet dress, among many others. Um, And then just one more thing before closing. I just want to say, if you have not done this yet, you have to take an art selfie on the app. Oh, yeah. It's really good. (laughs) Basically, it takes account of all these different points on your face and it matches you with artwork that is available on the app. So I had six different matches, April, and I did it two different ways, one with my hair down and one with my hair up. And it actually matched me with people and my bun or (laughs) (laughs) not people, um, people in paintings with my bun. So I think the most I had was like a 60% match. But if you guys haven't done it, you have to have the app to do it, but it's really fun. Yeah, I did it. And I think they matched me with a painting of a gentleman. And I was like, really? All right. Yes. I'm into it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, but check it out. It's really fun. It was going around a while ago. So yeah, but it now it has a renewed meaning in terms of you have the time. Why not mess around with it? Yeah. Well, you just happened to mention past guest, Laura Camerlingo, who curated the Language of Fans um, exhibit. And you had no idea that I was going to bring it back to her um, with one of the things that <laughs> I, I want. <laughs> what I want to talk about today, um, I have a book recommendation for everyone. And it is an exhibition catalog for the Contemporary Muslim Fashion Exhibition, which was up at um, the De Young Museum in San Francisco several years ago, a couple years ago, I think. Um, and it was there. It was curated by Jill D'Alessandro, Raina Lewis, and Laura Camerlingo. But now it has traveled to New York and opened at the Cooper Hewitt several weeks ago. And for any of those of you who might not know the Cooper Hewitt, they're actually part of the Smithsonian Museum system, and they are our National Design Museum. Um, And it's in a really beautiful space. The museum itself is housed in the former 
Mansion of Andrew Carnegie. So it, it's very quirky and cool. You're kind of in a museum, but you're also in someone's very elaborate private residence all at the same time. Um, and I want to talk about this um, exhibition and this exhibition catalog because I did actually get to see it. But before I get to that, I just want to say I had no idea, Cass, until I was tinkering around on the Cooper Hewitt site today. Every single thing in their collection is digitized. What? Yeah. They have a whole thing in the about wow. section that makes that this really big statement. Um, and you can go and hop online. I'm going to give you the address because finding the collections sometimes is a little bit tricky on sites, but it's collection cooperhewitt.org and that's collection.cooper c-o-o-p-e-r hewitt h-e-w-i-t-t dot org and it takes you in and you can search things by exhibitions um, you can search things thematically you can keyword search but yeah it's it's all in there go look um, fabulous I know <laughs> Um, And honestly, I had no idea that everything was digitized. But um, the exhibition that I actually went and saw recently um, is, of course, on contemporary Muslim fashion. And the the accompanying exhibition catalog is really, really wonderful, too. It's one of the things that I happened to bring home with me to read before the quarantine, not really knowing that it was going to happen. So I'm so glad that I did because in the exhibition itself, I mean, it's supremely beautiful. There's there's many, many, many Muslim designers from all over the world whose, whose work is featured in there. That's also a big section of the catalog. But what was what's really interesting about the catalog, because of course, as we all know, not every single thing that you might want to talk about on a topic can be put in the exhibition. So there's a lot of additional information in the catalog too that I thought was really great. Um, The catalog talks about the cultural history of veiling. Um, They talk about the past and present of modern fashion. They go into quite a lot about Muslim patronage of the haute couture houses in Paris. And also kind of like bringing it more up to date, this this intersection of fashion, faith, and social media. Um, So I highly encourage you to check out this book while you are perhaps at home. But you can also head over to uh, the Cooper Hewitt's website and check out the exhibition online. Yeah, and I'm just going to say that because of April, I jumped onto the Cooper Hewitt <laughs> website. <laughs> and there is also this incredible online exhibit that they currently have called Zoom Into This Embroidered Panel for a Cabinet Door, which might not sound as exciting as it well, it just doesn't sound as exciting as it actually is, but it is like this <laughs> elaborately embroidered door from, I don't know, maybe the 16th century. Yep, 16th century artisans. Um, you can zoom in, see all of the probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of stitches on this door. Um, so, I mean, that is the power of technology, people, mm-hmm. and it's bringing fashion history to you wherever you may be, wherever you are in the world. So pretty incredible stuff. And they're really big on tech over there. So they have they always have really cool things that are like tech features to exhibitions when you go. They have like these little these little pens that they attach to your ticket number and you can go and like QR code information into the pen about things that you want to kind of like take home with you and learn more about. And then it emails it to you when you leave. What? Yeah. That's exciting. They always have very, very fun things there. So uh, check out the Cooper Hewitt if you're not familiar with it. You know what also is a fun at-home activity, April? Have you built a wig on the V&A website? What? 
you know, <laughs> you know, I'm a big proponent of wigs. Yes. So Benjamin Wilde, past dressed guest and co-host of Dressed Fancy podcast, he actually just posted. Um, well, maybe it was last week. He's been lecturing at the VNA for some time now. Um, he does incredible, incredible. Uh, work. And he just posted this VNA wig builder. So you can go to the VNA. We'll obviously put a link to this and all the things we talk about today into uh, the show notes and the episode description on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we'll put a link, but you can basically go on. Um, <laughs> it basically takes you to this bald 18th century woman who they've taken from a fashion plate. It's all about creating 18th century poofs, by the way. And they say, in the eight, late 18th century, women's hairstyles went crazy. Create and share your own hair-raising design. Start by combing out from the head to sculpt the hairs. So you start, and you can just create whatever size shape, you know, <laughs> wig that you would like, essentially. Although, I will say, now that I'm saying this, American Duchess Guide to 18th Century Beauty, past dress guests, they talk about how a lot of women, there's a huge misconception of the 18th century, right, that you actually um, wore wigs. A lot of those women wear, wore their own hair and then put things under to support it. Um, but I digress. You can build a poof, decorate it with everything from ships to feathers, and then you can end it by poofing some uh, different colored powder on there for you. Yeah, and the American Duchess ladies actually came to FIT and did a whole in-person demonstration for us on how to do 18th century hair, and it was very, very cool. Um, I learned a ton. And I'm just going to say that their book right now is on sale for $15 on Amazon, and they have all of these different recipes um, for things that you can create at home, and then these how-tos about how to do your own hair. So, you know, those of us that maybe have a little bit more time on our hands, maybe we should all attempt an 18th century poof. Just saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did. Uh, they did a style on um, Abby. Uh, Lauren was doing it on Abby, and they did it in like an hour. It really. I mean, obviously, they know exactly what they're doing. They've been doing this for a very long time, but it didn't take nearly as long as you think it might. So it's no, it's all about knowing the tricks of the trade and having the right products because the hair products then were very, very different than what we use now. So That's true. And they have, again, recipes for how to create those hair products. And 18th century rouge. Yes, that's what I was just going to say, 18th century <laughs> rouge. So <laughs> who knows? Maybe I will... Um, Maybe I'll I'll attempt something this weekend, but you may never know because if it's unsuccessful, I'm not sure I will reveal the results. <laughs> um, okay, so we've been getting a lot of messages from uh, you guys over the past couple of weeks asking us to do something on face masks because, of course, that is the hot topic of the day, and I don't want to dwell on the C word coronavirus word. But um, I did find a really, really lovely, really well-researched article, cast that I want to talk about. Um, and it is in Fast Company, which is online, and it's by Mark Wilson. And the title of this is The Untold Origin Story of the N95 Face Mask. So I was like, of course I'm going to read this. <laughs> Untold origin story of something related to fashion and, and contemporary um, world events, I'm in. So basically, he, he starts um, out talking about the history of medical face masks. And he interviews this gentleman who's a professor at the University of St. Andrews, whose name is Christos Lentiris. And this is what he does. He studies medical history and specifically specializes in medical mask history. And he talks about 
Renaissance paintings, which of course show people wearing handkerchiefs to avoid illness um, during the plague, um, because at the time the plague was thought to be an airborne illness um, caused by impure air, which they kind of referred to as miasma. And, and that's why some of those, also those bird-like masks that we associate with the, t- the period of the plague, that those were thought to protect you from this miasma. And those really wide nostrils that kind of like are around the beak are like that because apparently they used to load those areas with incense. And they did this to protect themselves from the stench of the dead bodies. But it actually wasn't the stench or the impure air that was spreading the plague. Um, As you know, Cass, I'm sure it was actually contact with vermin and fleas. And then he kind of goes on to talk about how doctors didn't really start wearing surgical masks until 1897. And even when they did this, when they took this step, it was really to prevent the doctor from sneezing or coughing onto a patient's wound, not the other way around. So it wasn't protecting the physician. um, It was actually more to protect the patient. I know. I, I was. I got really, really into this article, and you guys should all go read it. <laughs> we. I will. It, it gets even more elaborate than this. I'm just giving you the cliff notes here. What happens next, though, in the story is actually really shocking for a lot of different reasons. Um, apparently, there was a very mysterious and deadly disease that emerged in Manchuria in 1910. And that region of the world was in a lot of political turmoil because the region was being fought over both the Chinese and the Russians, because it's kind of like right there on that border area. And when this disease mysteriously appeared out of nowhere, there was a Malay-born Chinese doctor whose name was Wu Lianti. And I'm sorry if I'm butchering that Chinese pronunciation. I do not speak Chinese. Um, I would love to, but I do not. And he had trained at Cambridge CAS, and he figured out by um, practicing some early autopsy techniques that the disease was actually an airborne pneumonic disease, like born from the lungs. And so he developed some of the first medical masks that we kind of think of as a modern medical mask by layering uh, several layers of gauze and cotton. And he started talking to all the other physicians that were trying to uh, figure out what this disease was, and uh, including a lot of Western doctors, and they didn't believe him at all because he was Asian. Yeah. Not surprising. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> rampant racism of the yeah. early early 20th century that still exists today, might yeah. I say. So, so some of these western doctors that were treating this disease, they they were like, yeah, 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 whatever, mask, it's not that. And so they didn't wear them, and many of them died because of this. So, um when people really started believing what he was talking about by 1911, the production of these masks were really ramped up. And they began to be adopted in China by medical professionals, um, by soldiers, and even a lot of the civilians at the time. So this is one of the reasons why by the time that the 1918 influenza hit all around the world, scientists already knew about his kind of new findings that had happened a few years earlier. And that's one of the reasons why during 1918, people were all wearing masks. Isn't that interesting? No, it's absolutely fascinating. So the N95 mask, uh, which we is everybody's, you know, in the news now, and all the medical professionals can't get enough of them to get their hands on them. Um, it's basically a direct descendant of Dr. Wu's invention. 
This is where things get very interesting from a fashion history perspective because 3M is one of the company, the company 3M is one of the major manufacturers of these masks today. And believe it or not, this all ties into the history of fashion in a way that's unrelated to face masks. All right. So stick with me here. By the 1950s, 3M had apparently developed some new technology for creating straps on some face masks that they were making at this point. And it was a melted polymer, which created a non-woven fabric. And enter former House and Garden editor, Sarah Little Turnbull. And she had kind of transitioned over and was working with 3M as a consultant in their gift wrapping division. And when she learned about some of this non-woven technology, she saw its potential. She gave a presentation a few years later in 1958 in which she pitched developing non-woven textiles even further and said, okay, here are a hundred ideas for you guys um, how I see that non-woven textiles could be used. And one of them was in developing bras. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she had some family members who sadly became very sick um, not long after this. So she was spending a lot of time in hospitals, and she was seeing all the medical staff wearing these masks that were kind of flat against their face. And she had been working on using non-woven textiles to create specialized cup shapes for bras. So she's like, oh my gosh, my cup shapes would make perfect medical masks. So that's all of a sudden when you see the transition from like a flat mask that just covers the face to the kind of conical ones that that we all wear today. I mean, this goes on and on and on and on. (laughs) It's it's really, really fascinating, but I I don't want to dwell on this too long. You can go read the article. There's some stuff, there's some more developments made in the 1970s. They go into um, some of the science and the reasons behind why non-woven textiles are better than woven textiles for medical masks. Um, And so... 3M has continued to develop this technology all the way up until you get where we are today. Um, and, and just one last note, um, thank you, Mark, for your really wonderfully researched article. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but he does note, Mark notes, that Dr. Wu, the, the doctor who um, the Western doctors did not believe, um, he actually went on to found the Chinese version of the CDC. And in 1935, he was actually nominated for a Nobel Prize. So, Wow. Yeah. It seems in the end that he was very, very vindicated on that front. And um, there's some also some really great information on him um, on medical history sites um, that are produced by medical organizations and medical institutions. Um, there's a lot of information out there on him. I think he even wrote an autobiography. So you can look that up if you want to learn more. And I have two responses to this because I had not read this article and this is all very new to me. One, you're basically just told me that women's breast shape inspired the evolution of face masks. Yes. And I am completely, I mean, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And then also next week's FHM just, you know, that's a little clue about next week's FHM. I guess I just won't, I won't go any further than that. A little Easter egg. 
yeah, a little Easter egg for what's to come. Um, well, thank you for giving us that overview. I'm going to hop on over and read that immediately after getting off of here. Yeah, please, please read it because I'm just giving you like the uh, quick synopsis. It's a rather lengthy article and it's really great. And I do want to say in regards to face masks that it has been so inspiring to see all of the makers and seamstresses out there that have stepped up and jumped on the opportunity to make face masks. I have so many friends who are doing it. Um, they're not um, by any means meant to be medical um, or protectant against the coronavirus, um, but there is such a shortage of face masks that this is kind of like the last resort for a lot of places. Um, it's also... Um, you know, something that people that aren't in direct contact with these patients can wear. And then what people um, just in general can wear is sort of something to protect their uh, them themselves from kind of touching their face with their hands. Um, so that's been really, really cool. And then also just to see all the fashion companies and designers like Christian Siriano, who announced last week or a couple weeks ago that his staff would step up and start making surgical masks to help medical pros. So you have these facilities that are used to create fashion being turned over to the creation of the medical face masks. And I think they're making something like 500 a day. And he's not the only fashion company. I know Brooks Brothers doing it now too. No, there's so many. Yeah, absolutely. So many designers have just fully turned over um, their studio um, to making face masks. So thank you. Yeah. And the Louis Vuitton, um, for instance, the perfume factory in, um, in France has, is making um, hand sanitizer. Mm -hmm. And I also think that LVMH just um, made a ginormous pledge of multi-millions of dollars um, to donate to um, necessary uh, medical technology needed in France as well. Yeah. So um, really, really cool to see fashion companies kind of stepping up and doing what needs to be done to take care of all of our, um, you know, men and women on the front lines battling this disease on the um, this virus on the daily. So like April said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone out there. Um, we appreciate you and we'll support you the best we can. And I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. Please tune in next Tuesday for our full-length episode. Um, if you would like to write to us with a future fashion history mystery question, you can do so on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore, or you can send us an email because we love hearing from you guys at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And if you have a moment to hop on over to iTunes or wherever you download our podcast and rate and review us, we would be oh so grateful to you all. Um, thank you all of our wonderful listeners around the world. We are so appreciative of you. And thank you, of course, to Holly Fry and Casey Pegram and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible. We will catch you Tuesday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.